Well, hey, it's, it's great to be with you all, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for making time for this. I'm, I'm hoping that um, I don't, uh, you know, blather on too long so we can leave a good bit of time for questions at the end. Um, but I have kind of a goal to cover a, a certain amount of ground here, so we'll, we'll di dive right in. Um, about 12 years ago, I'm sorry, about five years ago, um, I was in El Paso, Texas. And I'd gone down there with a group of friends to, to make a record. And there's this place in El Paso, it's called the Sonic Ranch, and it's, it's the world's largest pecan farm, and it sits right on the border of the United States and Mexico. And it's just sort of this incredible, picturesque place, and the guy who owns the pecan farm um, obviously is a, a wealthy guy, and he loves music, and so he built out these amazing studios. So we flew down there, we spent a day recording, and uh, just had a, sort of a magical experience. At the end of the day, we walked outside, and we walked out just as the sun was setting. And, uh, and I'll never forget this because the sun's setting over the desert. The desert just looks like it's on fire. There's a mountain on the Mexican side of the border that's just totally lit up. It's blood red. It's beautiful. And we all walked outside and we were all kind of stunned at what we saw. It just, it just took our breath away. And it felt kind of like the perfect end to the perfect day, right? Making music and, and all this. So as we're standing there kind of in awe of all of this, um, this guy named Manny, he was the engineer who had worked the, the sessions with us. Manny comes walking out and he's locking up the studio. And the, the way it works, when you, when you go to record at the ranch, you stay on, on site. They have these little houses kind of all through the pecan farm that you sleep in. And so we're getting ready. He's supposed to walk us basically 100 yards away to where the, the house is that we're staying. And as he walks out the door, you know, somebody says to him, man, uh, do you, does this ever get old to you? You know, it's just beautiful here. And he's like, yeah, you know, I've lived here my whole life. I mean, it's, it's really beautiful. I really, I really love it. You know, it's a great place to live. And he says, um, he says, you know, it does have its creepy moments, which, of course, we're all like, tell us more, you know. Um, and he says, well, he says, one morning I, I, was, I was called in early. I was supposed to come in real early in the day. And uh, we had a session starting at 9. So I came in at 5.30 in the morning to get the mic set up and get the amp set up and get everything ready for this band that was coming in. And uh, I got done a little, a little early. It was like 7.30, 8 o'clock, you know, before they got there. And I walk outside to smoke a cigarette. And, you know, all through this pecan farm, there's these irrigation ditches. And they pump in water from, from the Rio Grande, and they flood these, they basically flood the farm to water the trees because they don't get a whole lot of rain. He says, I walk outside, and I walk over to this irrigation ditch, and I see something floating in the water. And I'm thinking it's probably like an armadillo, because a lot of times armadillos fall down into the ditches, and, they, and when, they, when they flood them, they drown, and you know, it's gross. You have to call somebody from the ranch to come take them away. So I walk over a little closer, and I realize, oh, that's a human head. And that's not the only one. There's another one floating a few feet away, and another one, and another one. And by the time the FBI and the DEA and all these people kind of swarm the ranch after they call the police about this, by the time they're done, they find seven of them. See, the ranch sits right on the border of Mexico, and right on the other side of the border from Mexico is Juarez. And at the time, Juarez was the murder capital of the world. And so whatever Manny had stumbled into that morning, it was a, it was a bad, bad thing. So my friend Jason, he's the drummer who was with us, he says, he says, well, hopefully that's the worst thing that you've ever encountered here. And Manny goes, well, actually. <laughs> he says, another time I was here, and I was here late into the evening. And uh, it was way dark, 
And uh, the session was all done and everybody had gone home but me and I'm locking up. And he points to the house where we're about to stay. He goes, right over there by the house, he goes, I see this pair of eyes glowing. And, uh, and you know, there's coyotes that come through here all the time and coyotes are really skittish, they're not dangerous. So I just assumed, you know, oh, it's a coyote. You know, you, you stomp or clap your feet, you know, stomp your hands or, or stomp your feet or clap your hands, it usually scares them off. He's like, so I kind of stomped my feet and kicked some gravel and it didn't move. And I thought, oh, maybe it's a wolf because the wolves come through here and they're less timid. They're a little more aggressive. Um, and so I'm like, well, whatever it is, I'm not sticking around. I'm getting to my car. And as I start walking to my car, I realize that it's watching me and I realize that it's starting to move towards me. And as I get closer and closer to my car, it's moving closer and closer to me. And then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, it's walking under a street light and it's moving very aggressively towards me. And when it gets under the light, I see that it's hairless and it has spines up and down its back. It was El Chupacabra. <laughs> For those of you that didn't grow up watching the X-Files, uh, El Chupacabra, it's, it's literally the goat sucker. It's this sort of vampire lizard zombie dog that haunts the borderlands between the United States and Mexico. And, um, and, and what was crazy was, that as we stayed at that ranch that week, um, two things were confirmed for us. One was the, the, the story about the heads in the ditch. It was no exaggeration. The thing that was just as crazy was every time we turned around, somebody else was telling us their El Chupacabra story. Everybody had one. It was either happened to them or it happened to their brother or it happened, you know, to whatever. So I tell these stories. <laughs> this is about the time Dr. Keithley is going, now why did we invite Mike here? Um, <laughs> I tell these stories for two reasons, um, or for a few reasons. The first one is I wanted to just to sort of sneak in on you guys and, and remind you of what stories do. Because if I did a decent job of telling that story, what, what happens is when you and, and, and neurobiologists have looked at this, neuroscientists have looked at this, they, they say that when you, when you start listening to a story, the rational part of your brain, the part of your brain that's now kicked back on as I've started explaining some things, that part of your brain actually, the, the, the activity in that part of your brain slows down and your brain directs energy to other places, places like the imagination and places actually like the visual part of your brain. Because when you're listening to a story, your brain is basically creating images in your head to help it carry you through it. So there's an, in, there's an interesting magic trick that happens with storytelling, and, it, and because of that, stories have a way of sneaking past our rational thoughts and affecting us at levels that are often much deeper than, than we're aware of. The second reason I, I tell the story is because, this story in particular, is because uh, it shows you part of what's, what role stories, plays in our, pl stories play in our culture. I think those two ideas are connected. I think the fact that the murder capital of the world is a stone's throw away from this place. There's no coincidence between that and the fact that there's a rumor of a li vampire lizard zombie dog wandering in the darkness. Andy Crouch says that culture is what we make of the world. And I think something like El Chupacabra is a myth that gets made in order to give a name to the darkness that looms over the desert. And that's true for, for all of time, for the way these stories kind of thrive and survive. It's, it's a way to give a name to a darkness, to a mystery, to the frontier, to the unknown. So taking these two, eyes to, to, taking these two ideas together, we can see that stories affect us at this non-rational level in a very powerful way. And second, that stories are a way of, of making sense of the world.
And so you can think about how a story like this begins to sort of shape a culture. Somebody who's out in the desert, who's experiencing fear, who's experienced the darkness. At some point, somebody said, hey, maybe there's a vampire lizard zombie dog out here. And he tells that story to someone else. And then they, experiencing the darkness of the desert, remember that story and think, well, maybe that's a thing. And stories have this way of, of giving a name to an experience and then simultaneously shaping experience as stories are told and passed along. That was exactly what happened at the farm. Literally, like I said, everybody that we encountered at the farm, every single one of them had some kind of story. And for me to come in as an outsider, I'm like, well, of course there's no such thing as El Chupacabra. Of course that doesn't make sense. But I'm also certain at this, like, I don't believe in this, but I bet if I lived there for six months and heard story after story after story, and I believe the same thing's true for you, if you lived there long enough and heard the stories over and over again and felt that looming shadow of Juarez, just a, just a stone's throw away, then that story would suddenly become more and more and more believable. In a way, I think one, one of the things that's helpful to, when we realize the way that stories shape our experience of the world, part of what that does for us is it opens up uh, an understanding of the way knowledge actually works. It opens up our understanding of how we know the things that we know. And, and this is, you know, this kind of sort of story framework for understanding how the world works. It's not the way we typically think of knowledge. We typically think of knowledge in a much more rational kind of way. Um, my, my favorite way to think about this is, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Tony Romo, okay? Tony's got him going to have a bad year. He's off for the season, right? Um, and I, I don't say this with any scorn. I, I appreciate Tony Romo. He reminds me of Brett Favre. I like a gunslinger. So, Football aside. So, Tony, so Tony's got an offseason. What, what if Tony said to himself, hey, I want to pass on everything I know about, about uh, being a quarterback to somebody else. So on this offseason, I'm going to devote all of my time to writing down every single thing I know about being a quarterback. I'm going to fill journal after journal after journal. And over the course of the next six, nine, you know, wh however many months it is for him to recover, he fills thousands of pages with everything he knows. And, and so he finds an eight-year-old kid, right? And he says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this information on, on to you because I want you to be an elite quarterback by the time you're 18 years old. I want you to know everything I know and have all this stuff memorized over the next 10 years. So the kid takes it to heart, does the work at 18 years old. He takes the Tony Romo written test for quarterbacking and he passes with flying colors. Tony says, good, you're ready. Okay, let's go talk to your quarterback. Let's go talk to your coach. They go to the high school football coach. Hey, I've been getting this kid ready for 10 years. You know, he's ready. He knows everything an elite quarterback knows in the NFL. Coach says, great. We'll put him in at practice. Let him take a couple snaps. Kid gets suited up, gets under center. What's going to happen? Because here's the, th the, here's the other thing. He's never touched a football in his life. He knows everything he needs to know, right? Football gets snapped. What's going to happen? They're going to kill him, right? He's going to get annihilated. And, and what we would tend to say, what, we, what the cliche that would tend, tends to sort of come up in this conversation is, uh, we would look at this and we would go, well, knowledge isn't enough. You know, it's not just knowledge. But, but I actually think that a better way to think about this is to say, what he possesses isn't knowledge. He possesses information, but he doesn't know what Tony Romo knows. 
Because what Tony Romo knows is something that's embodied. It's about the space that he lives in. It's about the experiences he's had. It's about the way he, he, he has attuned his body and the experiences, the, the sum and total of his life has made him who he is and what he knows. So I think a better framework for thinking about knowing and a, and a framework that accounts for both that life experience kind of thing and for the role of stories is a, a, a theory of knowing that comes from a guy named Michael Pagliani. Pagliani was a, a research scientist and he really became fascinated with how scientific discovery happened. How did, uh, how did the great moments in science uh, present themselves. Because Pollyanna was thinking, if we could understand how discovery works, maybe we could make it more efficient. Maybe we could discover things more quickly. And so Pollyanna came up with this theory where he says, he says, we tend to think of knowledge like a whiteboard, right? It's a blank page, and we just need to load it up with the right information. It's like Tony Romo's playbook. Let's just get the information on the page, and now we'll know what it is. And Pollyanna says that that's not the way knowledge actually works. Knowledge is more like the tip of a white cane of a blind person who's feeling their way around the room. And what happens is you, you sort of enter the world, you enter a field of study, and you tap around, and, and you come to know one corner of the room. You find obstacles that, that, that you come to know the shape of over here, and you find obstacles that you come to know the shape of over here. And they're sort of, they, they seem these sort of random, disconnected things. But over time, the more you feel your way around the room, the more you start to find the connections between things. And for Pollyanna, what was really significant was the, the, more you, the better you mapped those things out as you made connections from one item to the other, that was how discovery happens. You, you connect these things together and you see how they fit in this sort of geography of knowing and boom, something new happens. Well, I think in terms of how we come to know and experience the world, it works very much in the same way. We're very much feeling our way through, through the world. We're, we're feeling our way through life. And we tap our way around, and as we tap our way around, we hear stories that try to account for how the world works, for, what, for what's there. So for instance, you might, if you're living in El Paso, be tapping your way around the room, and over here you hear these stories of the grim horrors of the cartels in the desert, and over here you hear the story of El Chupacabra, and suddenly there's this plausibility that makes much, much more sense. So you tap around the room and you hear about this and you hear about that and, and you, you come up against these borders and that becomes the framework for how you know what you know and, and for how you believe what you believe. Another reason I love this example of El Chupacabra is because it's so, it's so bizarre. It's so outside of our normal experiences. Um, I like to think of it in terms of being something like an enchanted relic. And, and by enchanted, I mean something very specific, what, what Charles Taylor calls, uh, the way that Charles Taylor, the philosopher, uses the word enchantment. What Taylor says is he says, uh, uh, um, 500 years ago or so, the world was enchanted. And by that, he means that the ordinary experiences of everyday life of a normal human being were full of wonder and full of mystery and full of a sense of the transcendent and the supernatural in a way that today we don't experience at all. At the time, people had this sense that we had a vulnerable soul, a soul that was vulnerable to, to the unknown, to spirits, to angels, to demons, to blessings, to curses. The, the world itself was full of, of a certain kind of mystery. We didn't know how what the weather worked. We didn't know where disease came from. And so the way that we comprehended those things, the way that human culture comprehended those things was often to tell stories, to write myths, to give names to the, the, the unknown and, and the mysterious. 
And the way Taylor talks about it is that kind of storytelling, that kind of cultural operation, it creates this thing called a social imaginary. And I think, I think what he means by that is very similar to what Pollyanni means when Pollyanni says, we sort of tap our way into this sense of knowing. We map this geography of knowing. And so in an enchanted wor world, uh, in an enchanted world, the, the stories that are told, the cultural stories that are told over and over again, reveal that human, humanity is weak and vulnerable, and that there's much more to the world than what we can see. And in a world like that, it, it's fertile soil for religion and, and for in general and for Christianity in particular. Today, however, we live on the other side of a massive cultural transformation. We live in an age that, that Taylor and the sociologist Max, Max Weber both say it's an age of disenchantment. And, and we've gotten there because piece by piece, brick by brick, so much of the mystery of the world has been resolved, has been unpacked and, and changed into something new. So today we don't believe that our souls are vulnerable to blessings and curses. We're not inclined to believe that there's more to the world than what we can see. Taylor offers his, his explanations for it, but, but one of my favorite explanations comes actually from Hannah Arendt. Arendt was a uh, German-Jewish philosopher and social theorist, and um, her story is fascinating because she barely escaped with her life from Nazi Germany. She was obviously a Jew in Germany. It was not a safe thing to be in the 1930s, so she escapes to France and ends up interned in France in a camp where they were awaiting to be shipped off to, uh, to a camp in the east, which would have meant almost certain death. And one morning, the, she and the other uh, prisoners at this camp woke up, and the French guards had just unlocked the doors and walked away, which saved all of their lives. And so she flees, uh, somehow makes it to, uh, to uh, free France, and then makes it to the United States. And from there, she devotes the rest of her life to trying to sort of understand how did this happen? How did we get to a place where the atrocities of World War II could have ever happened? And at one, in one of her books, in an essay in a book called uh, Between Past and Future, she basically says we can blame the whole thing on Karl Marx. <laughs> she says, and she says it like this. She says, all of Western thought has its origins in Plato. And if you really want to see sort of the, to, to boil it down to its simplest, it's in Plato's cave analogy. And if it's been a while since Philosophy 101, Plato's cave analogy is this. Plato says, imagine there's people who have spent their entire lives shackled up in a cave, facing a cave wall. They're, they're shackled up in such a way that they can't move their heads right or left, they can't look around them. All they can see, all they can experience is on that cave wall in front of them. Behind them there's a fire, and there's sort of these malevolent people manipulating shadows on the wall, casting shadows onto the, onto the wall in front of them. So, so that's all of reality for these people. Um, if you've seen The Matrix, this is sort of the premise behind The Matrix, right? All of reality is fake. Plato says, imagine what happens if one day somebody comes into the cave, unshackles these people, and takes them outside. And they see the sun, and they see the trees, and they see the beauty of the cosmos around them. Plato says, that's the goal of Western thought. Plato says, that's what the philosopher is supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to draw people out of their obsession with the material world, with, uh, with the, the basic needs of daily life, of food and shelter and rest and this sort of thing, and we're supposed to call their attention to the fact that there's some greater purpose, there's some higher, higher presence or higher meaning or, or transcendent meaning to life in, in this world. 
what Marx does is Marx comes along and he basically does the work of deconstructing all of this thought. And he basically says, look, we, we can't really know anything that's happening in the transcendent realm, if there even is one. Uh, religion itself is just this tool that gets used by the powerful to oppress the weak. Um, so it's time for us to cast off these shackles in particular and to focus instead on what we can see and what we can experience and what we can touch and what we can feel. There are no higher principles, so therefore politics should be at the center of our philosophy, and specifically economics, the ordinary economics of everyday life, the material world. And in a way, Marx is just a man of his own time. This is the kind of thing that's happening throughout culture at the same time as Marx, is there's this, this is the brick by brick disenchantment of the world. So Darwin comes along and he says, hey, there's no such thing as special creation. There's no such thing as a God who intends these things. There's just this story of creature begetting creature begetting creature moving, moving history along until we come along. Freud comes along and essentially says something similar. Freud says, those voices in your head, those temptations you're experiencing, those aren't demons, that's just your mother. <laughs> and so you have this, this social imaginary or this, this geography of knowing of the world that goes from a world where when you tried to understand how things worked and what was going on and you felt your way around, it goes from a world where it's a world full of magic and a world full of mystery <coughs> and a world full of transcendence to a world where there's rational explanations for everything, there's a material explanation for every single thing. What Arndt says about Marx is brilliant. She says, Marx took us back into the cave, shackled us up, and said, this is the only thing that's real, is the shadow on the wall. So now we live in the cave, and we only, we only live in this world of shadows, but because we're storytelling creatures, we're still telling stories that try to make sense of the world. And if there's not a spiritual meta-narrative that makes sense of it, we'll find other narratives to make sense of it. And, and the primary sort of theme that you see running through Western culture for the last couple of hundred years is this idea of sort of evolution and progress. Uh, you know, secularists in the United States have really clung on to the idea of progress and, and refer to themselves now as progressives. And if you understand it properly, what you see in, in liberals and progressives is that they're driven by a story. They are telling a story about history. We used to be these superstitious, bigoted, hateful people, but thank God, or thank the universe, <laughs> that we are, we have, we've seen the errors of our ways, we've put away the gods, we've put away the superstition, and now we understand how humanity really is and how it works, and you need to get, aboard, get on board with our agenda. And one of the things I see online in comment sections and when there's these debates around sexual ethics and this sort of thing, you see people who identify as progressives saying, you need to evolve already, right? There's, a, there's an inevitability to, to the way that they see history and culture, and that's a story that they're telling. Likewise, you see all kinds of stories and, and all kinds of ways of talking about human experience that are essentially designed to shame us away from belief. Charles Taylor calls them disciplines of disenchantment, and he says, he says anytime somebody's accusing you of magical thinking or of superstition, then that's what's going on. And it's, it's functionally a story. It's a way of saying, oh, we used to think that way, now we know better. There's movies that do this really well as well. I won't get into the details unless you want to later, but movies like Garden State, where, where this whole experience sort of culminates in facing this empty, trash-filled abyss. Um, 
the movie Castaway, which, which feels like a really powerful, hopeful movie in a lot of ways, but is actually incredibly despairing, that there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's no th such thing as true love. There's only this guy who's alone in the world. And, and his ultimate answer, his ultimate lesson that he learns from all of this is that he was always cast away. He was always alone. Uh, a few couple years ago, the comedian Louis C.K. was on Conan O'Brien and he gave sort of one of the best examples of these disciplines of disenchantment that, that I've ever seen. He's, he tells the story, he says he's driving down the road one day and Bruce Springsteen comes on the radio and the song just really moved him and it, it really moved him uh, emotionally and, and he ended up thinking about his life and the meaning of his life and, and sort of grappling with the fact that he's alone and he's going to die alone and that death is the end and sort of this... this um, this sort of vacuous sense of like this, it's all for nothing really when we die and it all goes away. And he connects this to why he won't buy his kids cell phones. Here's what he says. He says, what the phones are taking away is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because under, underneath everything in your life is that thing, that empty, forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you're in the car, and you start going, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone, it starts to visit on you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That is why we text and drive. I look around and pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting and they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars, but people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. And what's amazing about this is what he's holding out is he's saying the, the mature posture, the strong posture, the brave posture is to live your life going, we're alone, life is empty and meaningless. That's progress. That's a story that the culture itself is telling. And it's important to think of it this way. That's a story that we're all encountering and experiencing as we're making our way through the world, trying to come to know. So if knowledge isn't but just propositions, but stories and experiences, then stories like Louis, through their perpetual repetition, become a way of that we come to know the world. So we tap through the world and, and we hear these, these disenchanted stories that say that there's no such thing as mystery, there's no such thing as spiritual vulnerability, there's no consequences beyond what we have in this life. And shaped by that story, we end up looking for other stories that satisfy the way that eternity resonates in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that eternity reigns in our hearts, and so we're longing for that greater meaning. It doesn't, that longing doesn't go away simply because we've cut it off from these other places. And as Taylor puts it, if you can't find meaning in, in transcendence, you'll look for it in imminence. And so in a world without transcendence, what we're left with is power and fame and money. And so that get, brings us to the high priestess of Western culture today, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> And I, I gotta admit, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with Kim lately because of the way she, she I really believe that she has become an, an icon in our society. And I mean that in the literal religious sense of an icon. The way an icon would work, I, I should have I brought an image of one, but um, one of my favorite icons, uh, one of the best examples of an icon, I should say, um, I'm a Baptist, this isn't a pro-icon argument, just to be clear, but one of the best examples of a religious icon, there's a Byzantine icon where the Trinity is gathered around the table. Anybody seen this? Is this ringing bells? So the Trinity is sitting around this table together, 
And the way an icon would work is that you know, somebody would, would teach you how to meditate on this icon by explaining the different symbols to you. So you'd say, well, that's the Trinity, and they're gathered around the table, and, and what the gospel means is that you can be part of this community. You can know God, you can be at the table with God in community. Um, the way you access it, there's a little door there at the bottom of the table, it's the narrow way. The Christian life is hard, and it's a narrow path that you have to walk to come to, to know God. But there in the distance, that's the heavenly city, that's where we're gonna go. Over there, there's the, the olive branch <coughs> that represents the line of David and, and, and reminds us of God's faithfulness, et cetera, et cetera. So this religious icon is essentially holding up a picture of this is the good life. This is the destination of our life of faith. This is what you want, and this is what you are orienting your life towards as a person of faith. But like I said, I think Kardashian is exactly that. She's a symbol of the good life. She's a symbol, she's the embodiment of all the things that in a disenchanted Western world we think are gonna make us happy. Fame, power, success, influence, sexuality, beauty, leisure, an immense amount of <laughs> leisure. And, and the simplest way, to, to, to me, the, the, the strongest argument for it is simply the fact that, that you have to ask yourself, well, what is she famous for, you know? And some people say, well, she's famous because she had a sex tape, but guys, there are lots of people who had sex tapes that are not famous and certainly aren't billionaires. So why is she famous? She, she was asked this question by a, a reporter in, in The Guardian, and, um, and in this interview with The Guardian, you know, she's talking about her network and, and she's talking about all the different, the different empire that she's sort of built, this commerce empire that she's built. And, and the reporter's exasperated by this because he's like, he just doesn't get it. And he goes, well, okay, so that's why you're famous. Tell me what your talent is. What is your talent? And she's, he says, you know, she sat there and stared for a moment and then she gave him this big wide-eyed look. And she says, well, a bear can juggle and stand on a ball and he's talented, but he's not famous. Do you know what I mean? That's a brilliant quote, guys. <laughs> she's famous because she embodies so much of what we think would make us happy. She's an icon of desire. And, and because of her status as, a, as an icon, because, because no one's ever necessarily holding her up in front of the culture and saying, propositionally, you want these things, because most of us would sort of balk at that, because she, she's presented to us as, as images and as stories, and, and because we, we confront her on this way, she gets to us through the level of emotion and imagination, and she has immense, immense cultural power. And she's not the only religious icon that we have to deal with these days. There's many, many of them. One of the ones I, I think about is, is Food Network, right? That's, a net, that's, a, that's an image of the good life. You know, there's a reason why the Rolling Stones sing, I can't get no satisfaction. We, we all know that life, uh, as Woody Allen put it, life is, uh, every, the, the fulfillment of our dreams is dissatisfying because life itself is a little dissatisfying. So we go through our days and we pursue satisfaction and, and it always kind of eludes us. And what we love about the Food Network is it holds out something that we think, man, that meal that I can never touch and that I'm actually only looking at a two-dimensional representation of that I can't see, taste, or smell, that meal is the thing that would make me happy. It scratches that itch, it scratches that longing, it gives us, a, gives us an outlet for it. And often we watch it while drinking Mountain Dew and eating Flaming Hot Cheetos, right? <laughs> <laughs> Romantic comedies do the same thing. They hold out, they hold out this picture, they hold out this image of, of happy ever after that we long for. 
Uh, I talked about this a little earlier today, but the show Love It or Love It or List It, this HGTV show, that is an icon of the good life. People go out on a quest looking for satisfaction and they go out into the world and either they're gonna find satisfaction in the world on their search or they're gonna come home and realize that everything they always wanted was there. But either way, it ends utopian, they're home. And that, I think both the food TV stuff and, and the, the HGTV stuff, they scratch really deep itches for us that have roots in a profound spiritual desire for a meal that satisfies. This, the end of history is a feast, right? We long for a meal that brings us home, and we long to come home. We're, we're exiles. We're exiles from the garden. David Foster Wallace says that we're all dying to give ourselves away for, to something. And in a world where transcendence has been cut off, we find ourselves giving ourselves away to these stories and these ideas and these icons and hopes and idols in a material world. So then as believers, as Christians, what, what can we make of this? And how can we navigate a world of stories like this? The first thing I think we should do is we need to become better critics and better readers of culture. We need to see where the stories around us are pointing, what they're holding out as an image of the good life. For most of my life, and I would have to say, like, this has changed dramatically in the last five or six years, um, in part because of people like Jeffrey Overstreet and Alyssa Wilkinson. But for most of my life, Christian conversations around culture were about content warnings, sex, violence, profanity. And the trouble with that is that that's just skimming the surface. A show like Love It or List It sneaks right past you on the criteria of sex, violence, and profanity. In fact, my favorite example of, of the whole HGTV ph phenomenon is Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I think it's an incredibly, incredibly interesting and in some ways disturbing show. You, the premise here is some family who has suffered gets the blessing of a new home. And so the show comes in, they send the family off to Disney World, they knock down the house, and they build the family the dream home that, that, that resolves the crisis that the family was having because of needs, because of wh whatever the situation is. And at the end of the show, the family comes back home, and there's a bus blocking the house, you know, and the whole crowd, everybody's there. And the show culminates, and everybody yells. That's right. Bus pulls away, and what happens next? What happens next? They cry. They weep, they raise their hands in the air, they fall to their knees. How do we call that anything but worship, right? And here's really interesting. You wanna, you wanna know if scriptures are true? The scriptures tell us that our idols will crush us. Look what happens in the aftermath of that show. There's a reason it's not on TV anymore. It was huge ratings, and it's not on TV anymore. Why? Watch what happens when the show's over. They can't afford the taxes on those homes. They have to sell, they get foreclosed on. It's terrible. It's terrible what happens on that show sometimes. So we have to be more discerning about what's happening in the stories that are being told around us. The second thing I wanna argue for is that we have to learn to tell better stories. And I mean that in both, uh, in both a grand sense as the Christian people whose lives are shaped by a story and as people who are living in a world and, and participating in the culture. So first, we need to be shaped by a better story. And by that, I would just simply nod to the worship, the liturgy, the spiritual disciplines and practices of the church that have always defined the life of the church, the formative life of the church in the world. 
And that's something that's much grander, much bigger, much more holistic than simply conversations about worldview. I'm not saying worldview doesn't matter, but worldview is only transformative if it's, if it's, if it's, connected, to, if it's connected to a way of life, different habits, different practices, different orientations for how we think and how we experience the world. To get down to nuts and bolts, I think the church needs to do way more work at learning to pray and teaching our children to pray, immersing ourselves in the story of scripture, not just consuming content, feasting, fasting, celebrating life's gifts, and recognizing that the story of the gospel needs to be told at every turn, every opportunity in our lives. I think, I think the church, sort of in the midst of this gospel-centered movement, that, that has kind of happened over the last 10 years or so, sometimes you, you hear this pushback when, when people are talking about the church gathering and telling the story of the gospel every week. People are like, well, uh, we're afraid that, that it's going to become rote. If we, sell it, if we say it too often, people are going to hear it too much and, and sort of tune it out. And what I would point to as a, as a counter-argument is Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. How many times did they make the same movie over and over again? And how many billions of dollars did they make? And how often are those movies on cable TV now? People love hearing the same stories over and over again if it gives them a plausible hope for themselves. And that's what Tom, those Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movies did brilliantly, was present a love story that was compelling and that you wanted to see yourself in. Uh, a little side note, the best of those movies, if you haven't seen it, the best one was the first one. It was Joe versus the Volcano. <laughs> that movie is it's one of the best scripts. I'll, I'll put it on the table. Uh, John Patrick Shanley, he's the same guy who wrote Doubt. He won an Oscar for Doubt a couple years ago, which is a very different movie than Joe versus the Volcano. Anyway, back to the point why I'm here. Um, the second thing, so we need to be shaped by better stories. We need to be shaped by the story of the gospel. And then we need to learn to tell better stories. And, and intentionally, this comes second. We need to be people whose lives are shaped and transformed so that they are, it is a way of life that is oriented around the story of the gospel. And as those people then in the world, we need to tell better stories. That's not fundamentally about cramming a Christian worldview into our art and making sure that we mention Jesus enough times in our songs and, and all of that. Rather, <coughs> and it doesn't necessarily mean that, that we're creating Christian art, overtly Christian art at all, though it totally may be that. And some Christian artists feel called and compelled to that, and that's a worthy calling. Instead, I, I want us to think of it as, as back to this idea of, of tapping our way around the room. If you have lived a life that has reoriented you to the world, then, then as you tell your stories, then people are going to encounter your stories and they're going to be tapping their way around the room and they're, they're, they're shaped by this sort of disenchanted way of knowing the world and they encounter you and all of a sudden there's a crack in the wall and there's a new room that opens up that, that, that's maybe a room with transcendence in it and maybe the possibility of a God who loves them and knows them and died for them. We need art that, that cracks open this disenchanted way of thinking and experiencing and lets a little light in. And we have brilliant examples in people like T.S. Eliot and Flannery O'Connor and Madeline Langle and Lucy Shaw and Walker Percy and Wendell Berry and, of course, Tolkien and Lewis. It's art that bears witness to another kind of world. And frankly, there's, there's a struggle here. There's a conflict here because Christian culture... Uh, in terms of the Christian subculture, which is a, a, a massive multi-million dollar industry and entity that is 
creating culture, that's making movies and television and, and, and making music, uh, doesn't, doesn't operate on these principles. They operate on the principles of, first off, they operate just simply on the principles of capitalism. How can we make the most money? And the way they can make the most money is by safely writing stories that are safe for the whole family and that, that make the Christian content really overt. What's interesting is to, to think of it this way. Imagine Flannery O'Connor walks into the front doors of one of the big Christian fiction publishing houses. Um, number one, by the way, number one selling genre I of, in Christian publishing is Amish fiction, which tells you something in and of itself. Um, so imagine Flannery O'Connor shows up at one of those places and she hands them Enoch and the Gorilla, you know, her short story about a guy who murders somebody because he wants to wear a gorilla suit. And it's a, it's a powerful tale about, about redemption and, and idolatry and isolation and all this stuff. She hands them Enoch and the Gorilla. The chances of her getting published are just zero. It's not gonna get, it's not gonna happen. But here's what's most interesting. Her stories are so good that when she, if she showed up at the New Yorker today with one of those stories, there's no question that she'd be published. There's no question that somebody like her with her creative imagination and her dedication to craft as a writer would have still been able to break through on the highest levels of it. And so I think there's this inherent tension for Christians in culture, for Christians who are culture makers, and that there's this world where if you obey these rules, and if you're pretty good at it, you can open up, there's, there's lots of opportunity. There's opportunities to make, to make a lot of money and to reach a lot of people, but it may not necessarily be an opportunity to make great art. And so, and, and I think we, we do ourselves a massive disservice if we cast that calling aside and and are satisfied with, well, I'm not gonna make great art, but I'm gonna serve Christians well. You're not actually serving Christians well. And you're not actually participating in this broader cultural conversation. And there are Christians who are doing that, who are participating in the broader conversation, that are, that are writers, that are, that are artists, that are filmmakers. I mean, the director of the Doctor Strange film that comes out this fall, his name is Scott Derrickson, very serious, very dedicated Christian. And he, you know, to borrow a line from, from Steve Martin, how does a guy like that get to where he is? How does a, a writer like Brett Lott, um, who's a very serious uh, Christian himself, who's, you know, well, uh, a New York, best time, New York Times bestselling novelist, he was in Oprah's book club selection, very serious evangelical Christian. How do guys like that get into the positions that they get? Steve Martin says, be so good they can't ignore you. And so Christians need to take that calling to, to tell better stories, to, to go into their work as craftsmen and as artists and say, I want to be so good I can't be ignored. I'm not going to settle for, for overt content that maybe gets me in certain doors more easily, but I'm going to try to make good art. Art that bears witness to another world, art that opens up the possibilities of different ways of thinking and experiencing the world. So I think for Christians who are shaped by stories and shaping stories, who are, t who are telling stories and, and, and hearing stories, we need to immerse ourselves in a better story that reshapes the way we experience the world. We need to be transformed, and then we need to be transformed people who are telling better stories. Done well, we can disrupt and disturb people's disenchantment. We can unmask idols in the ways that they sit all around us. To borrow a phrase from Cormac McCarthy, we can be the people who carry the fire. We can carry the fire into a dark world. 
And I think there's a lot of reason for hope for this. And the, the simplest one is simply that disenchantment doesn't hold up. That's not reality. It's easy to crack that world open because it can't account for our experience. A disenchanted understanding of reality can't account for love, for jealousy, for death, for darkness. It can't account for, for what troubled Hannah Arendt so, so, so badly, that this sense of radical evil at work in the world. It can't account for our own experiences. Uh, one of the books that I found that was so interesting a few years ago was a book by a guy named Jonathan Gottschall called The Storytelling Animal. And what, what he does in that book is he, he looks at sort of neuroscience and evolutionary biology and psychology and all these different disciplines and says, tries to answer the question, why are human beings storytelling creatures? Why do we tell stories? And his conclusions are, are almost laughable. You know, it basically, for him, it basically boils down, he's, he's a little bit agnostic about it, but the best answers that he can find are sort of evolutionary biology that say that this, this ability, this, this capacity for storytelling came along so that somebody could go out on a hunt and come back and say, hey, don't go into that cave, there's a tiger in there, right? The ability to relay that information. That's, that's essentially the heart of the best working theory right now from an evolutionary perspective of why we're storytelling people. And, and there's a lot of ways that you can argue this from a Christian perspective, but I think the simplest one is to, simply, is to just say, does that fit? Does that make sense? Does that account for what we experience as storytellers? Does it account for what happens when a story really moves us or a song or a piece of art that it just happened? Does it fit? I think our invitation is, is to follow Paul's footsteps at the Oropagus and say, listen, I've heard your stories, I've heard your songs, I've heard your poems, I've seen the heroes that you're looking for and the love that you're longing for, and it has a name, and its name is Jesus. So to come back to the beginning, this story, this, this strange story about El Chupacabra, I think it also shows the way this, how this way of seeing doesn't hold up. Because the cartels themselves don't offer a sufficient answer to the monstrosity of death that looms over the desert. That evil na needs another name and it needs to be connected with something that's more mysterious and less comprehensible to us than we would like it to be. There's a greater darkness in the backdrop than what we can see. But by looking into that darkness, by comprehending how deep, how oppressive, and how powerful it is, we can tell a better story of the light that shines in it and be assured that the darkness won't overcome it. Thank you.